I've often quoted as saying I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. They share our beliefs, our convictions, our hopes, and our dreams. These are the conservatives of the heart. They are our people. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI. Educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny and Marlo. Today we are joined by ISI faculty members, Elizabeth Corey and Jeff Paulette. Uh, Jeff is actually joining us again. Um, so thank you both for being on the show today. Glad to be here. This week for our listener question, Gina asks, are there any broad political trends in the U.S. that you feel aren't being reported on, talked about enough, and what are the implications of those trends? Jeff, did you want to start us off? Sure. Um, You know, in the age of social media, it's kind of hard to say that trends aren't being talked about enough. They're being indulged in every kind of way that you can imagine, I think. Uh, But one of them that I think is not getting enough attention and strikes me as a pretty important one is uh, the sort of overall state of our economy. In the past year, I've had this experience that everything I thought I knew about economics just seems to be either completely wrong or there's kind of a catastrophe looming on the horizon. And I think specifically uh, conversations about debt. Uh, Years ago, there would have always been this kind of wing in our politics and you know the the debt hawks who were kind of overseeing things and concerned about the direction things were going in. I mean, our national debt is uh, inching up to thirty trillion dollars now, and no one seems to think that this is a problem. Uh, you know, Congress and the president are putting together this four trillion dollars spending bill, and no one seems to think this is a problem. Um, you know, the states are spending money uh, like crazy, and no one seems to think this is a problem. Um, I'm still of the mind that debt is a problem. And uh, among other things, um, uh, there's a loss of independence that comes along with it. Um, And so I I think, uh, you know, there are a couple of of things that could still happen, one of which is the U.S. dealing with this debt problem by monetizing it Um, and and, uh, obviously the inflationary consequences. I think maybe we're already seeing that some of the inflationary consequences of that. And, um, you know, if you start getting into double, double digit inflation, uh, your, your economy's in ruins. And, you know, so a book ISI has published, William Ripka's uh, The Humane Economy talks about the evil inflation and how inflation is so disastrous uh, for economic activity. So that's the one that I think that just isn't getting enough attention. Jeff and uh, Elizabeth, just for our listeners, could you um, explain kind of what your fields of specialization are at your respective universities, what you teach? I I teach political theory at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Yeah, and I teach political science. I teach constitutional law and great books classes at Baylor University and the Honors College. And Elizabeth, what would you answer for the listener question for the week about what broad political trends you feel are underreported and what the implications of those trends are? Yes. Well, since Jeff brought us down a little bit with the reporting on on the deficit, which he's absolutely right to do, I wanted to highlight something a little bit more positive. I know we've all talked about this before, uh, but it is the rise in um, the secondary schools, Christian classical schools that are popping up as an alternative around the country to public schools and um, to just other independent schools because they are much more loyal to the Western tradition. They're interested in reading the great books. 
Uh, and this is something that is, is really going on uh, all over the place. And people don't talk about it a lot because they're too busy doing it. I mean, they're really in the process of setting up schools, uh, finding teachers, employing people to, to, to teach these things. And they're not out writing a lot of op-eds about it. So I think that's the kind of thing that is going on behind the scenes that we would do well to, to focus on as a kind of sign of progress uh, in an age where there's a lot to be uh, despairing about. Mm. I believe one of the um, Fund for American Studies fellows is actually writing about that subject specifically. So it'll be interesting to see what um, what his research turns up about that subject, since it seems like in the past year, um, as someone who used to report on education, there's certainly been, I, I've seen some states have like a triple digit surge of interest in homeschooling and other, you know, um, less traditional um, school formats in, in the wake of, you know, COVID, obviously, and some of the uh, reporting on critical race theory. So um, it's, you know, if you're someone who's a, uh, who's a proponent of alternative education, which I'd say ISI, we are, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very heartening trend to see for sure. So what about you, Jenny? Well, I was just going to add on that, um, the homeschooling point, I read this article and so it actually went up from five to 11% this past year, American families homeschooling. And it's actually African-American families and Hispanic families that have the highest percentages of of homeschooling. So it's now 16% African-American and 12 Hispanic and then nine white and eight Asian. So that's interesting, uh, interesting trend, but I definitely think it's a, a positive development. Is there anything, Johnny, that you have had your eyes on as far as what you'd like to see um, reported on more trends happening? I think, trends? I think Elizabeth and Jeff, I think uh, debt and homeschooling, uh, you know, yeah. two important things. I think we can leave it there. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, now for the books of the week. Elizabeth, what are you reading right now? Well, I'm, I have on my list to read, which I am about to turn to, a book by Erica Bacchiacci. I don't know if you all know Erica. She's a wonderful scholar of constitutional law and many other things, but she's written a book called The Rights of Women, uh, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, and it's come out through Notre Dame and is part of their uh, Catholic Ideas series, and I am just dying to read this. I'm about to turn to it uh, because she's she's a very smart, uh, conservative woman who who wants to talk about feminism in a way that is not uh, politically polarizing, but actually does justice to what she understands women's interests to be. And uh, so that's my, that's my next, that's my next read. And I would, I would recommend it widely uh, having read just a, just in a little bit of it. Very interesting. We actually um, had the opportunity to speak with Mary Harrington, who's a British writer for Unheard. You might be familiar. Um, she has a blog called Reactionary Feminist, and she is also coming out with a book and she, um, very you know, much so commended Erica Bakayoki's book um, as a uh, nice departure from some of the other uh, literature she's had to read to you know trudge through while she's writing that book. So um, I've heard many other women also recommend it. Yeah, Mary Harrington is one of those people who um, I also think is a very smart writer on these things. There's a there's a real debate though. I mean about kind of conservative feminism. Scott Yenner has a new book out about it. And I think Scott and Erica are a little bit different on, on the way they come down here. So I'm looking forward to actually reading both those books. Jeff, what are you, what are you reading? Well, uh, as is always the case, we've got a couple going on uh, at once here. One I just finished, uh, a book about three things that really matter to me, um, is Pappy Land by Wright Thompson, which is uh, the story of family, fine bourbon, and things that last. Um, it's really, uh, I, I loved reading it. Um, 
it's, it's about Pappy Van Winkle, which is this boutique bourbon and uh, just the struggles the family had to go through. And, and what it's really about is the relationship between fathers and sons. Um, and uh, so I found it a really compelling book that way. Uh, rereading Camus' The Plague for an article I'm writing and an article I'm envisioning. And so it's one of my favorite books that I've been rereading, and that's Richard Russo's Straight Man. Uh, I, I want to do a, a an essay on the state of the campus novel on the assumption that uh, you can't really satirize the academy anymore. Uh, so I'm going through uh, a lot of these old uh, academic satire uh, books and uh, just sort of reading them with an eye toward, you know, what once seemed crazy now just seems kind of almost sane by comparison. Marlo, how about you? What are you, what are you reading these days? Um, so I'm reading William Hertung's Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin, The Making of the Military Industrial Complex. My interest was kind of peaked after um, some of the, the, the Afghanistan departure. And I just wanted to learn a little bit more of, I, I wanted a rundown of everything you need to know about the you know military industrial complex, since that's you know a, a term thrown around a lot. And some of the waste and fraud and abuse that Hartung um writes about in his um, in his book uh, and what goes into these government contracts. And I wanted to revisit the topic in the wake of the departure. And since I, I don't know too much of the the background details of it. So um, it's, it's been a nice aberration from some of the other more uh, abstract readings I've had. What about, what about you, Johnny? Well, on that uh, military industrial complex point, we had um, Joe Lonsdale speak at our Collegiate Network Editors Conference. And he yeah, does a lot of work in the defense space and has a venture capital fund. But he was basically saying that when his firm, uh, well, Palantir was the firm that he co-founded, uh, tries to, you know, has, tries to compete with some of these other more established firms, you know, Lockheed Martin and, you know, the kind of the usual suspects. He said in order to get the contract, they, they, they basically have to show that they're like, 10x better than their competitors in order to really even get considered. They have to like build the political pressure so much that it's overwhelming that they have to get the contract. So I think one of his his firms, um, it's not Palantir, another one just got a, a big electromagnetic uh, EMP contract and they had to take the Pentagon out to the desert and show them they could, you know, uh, stop, stop things moving uh, with their EMP. So anyways, yeah, interesting Interesting topic. Um, I just started a, a Reagan biography. I'm on my long, long march through presidential biographies. I think I've done about a dozen this past year. And uh, I'm reading H.W. Uh, Brand's uh, Reagan. So it's it's good so far. Uh, he's yeah about to go off to, to World War II. So it's um, it's a good read. Before we continue with the interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that goal, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. Elizabeth and Jeff, we're so happy to have you on today to chat a bit about your latest piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education titled Indoctrination Sessions have no place in the academy. Before we talk a bit about your piece, can you tell us a little bit about your background uh, and history with ISI? Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. I uh, have been involved with ISI for many years because my uh, father was uh, a board member at ISI and a reviewer of the Weaver Fellowships for many years. So I would see the Weaver Fellowships come in year after year, uh, even as a, as a young child and, and knew what, what was going on at ISI. Um, 
I have not uh, not done any of the undergraduate scholarships, uh, but or the graduate scholarships. But I um, I now teach as a faculty member for the honors program in the summer, uh, which has been a great opportunity to meet some of the finest students I know uh, from across the country, and also to meet uh, friends and faculty members. So uh, I've I, I love ISI and have been associated with it for quite a long time. Uh, my own association is a bit more recent. I, I knew about it during graduate school, uh, but really didn't have a whole lot of connection with it. Um, when Jeremy Beer was at ISI, I knew Jeremy and, and uh, would talk with him and, and uh, spend time with him. Um, probably about uh, 10, 11 years ago, I was invited uh, to speak at one of the regional conferences. And since then, I've been really actively involved for a lot of the same reasons um, Elizabeth mentioned. Elizabeth and I met through ISI, actually. It's one of the great things uh, about ISI is its ability to create networks uh, among people. And um, uh, yeah, it's just it's been just an incredibly fruitful relationship. One of the things that uh, conservative professors will talk about when they get together is how essential ISI has been to the intellectual life on their particular campuses. Uh, I have a lecture on my campus today, in fact, that's being sponsored by ISI, um, right? I mean, uh, book reading clubs, uh, all these things. I mean, they've, they've, it's really added to the intellectual life of Hope's campus a lot. Mm-hmm. Who, who do you have coming to speak today, Jeff? Cara Rogers from Ashland University. Oh, fantastic. He's great. Yeah. So on the subject of higher education and the university, I wanted to transition into the your latest piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education titled Indoctrination Sessions Have No Place in the Academy. Um, what was the impetus for this piece? What, what prompted you to write it and to write it together? From you know, You're both from different universities, so it seems to acknowledge and recognize that this is something that transcends certain universities, maybe, you know, the Ivies, ones that are making headlines for being activist. What prompted you to write this? Well, I'll just start. For one thing, it was the having been subjected to the training sessions at our own universities. I believe Hope, and I know for sure that Baylor was late to this party um, in, in terms of diversity and inclusion. We did not have anything on campus to, to promote diversity as a formal entity until about five or six years ago, at which point we started doing um, diversity and inclusion sessions on campus. And then we eventually hired some people in the office. And now we have a full, full-on um, diversity office that does lots of things. I'm not sure exactly what, but, but I know that they're quite busy. And one of the things they do is ask us as faculty members and all the students to take what are called diversity trainings. And I took my first diversity training a few years ago and realized that there were some significant problems with it. The the major one of which was that it was uh, (laughs) it looked more like indoctrination than than any kind of training for uh, a discrete end that we could agree on. And so having having that experience and then meeting Jeff and talking with Jeff about these things, turns out he's had the same experience. And, and as you as we know now, it's going on all across the, the country. So that was really the impetus for us to, to write together, that we realized we had a common experience and that it was probably something that we needed to comment on. Jeff, uh, when did the, I'm curious on, on Hope's camp, Elizabeth said it was maybe, you said five years ago that it started at Baylor. Jeff, what about at Hope? When did this start taking hold? Um, I think that's uh, probably a similar time frame. Hope is always about five years behind whatever educational trend is going on, but we're always huffing and puffing trying to catch up with them. Uh, you never can get there, though, because these trends move so quickly. 
uh, that, uh, yeah, you're, you're, we're always kind of behind the curve. And like Elizabeth said, it's just dealing with these training sessions and sitting in on them. And they range from, and, and we mentioned this in the article, they range from useful to ridiculous to infuriating. And I can deal with the useful ones. I can even deal with the ridiculous ones, but it's the infuriating ones that, that kind of get you. The ridiculous ones just are just a waste of time. J- Jeff, to jump in real quick. I'm curious. We hear about all the infuriating and ridiculous. Could you give an example of one uh, that you have found to be useful? Well, using computer systems, for example. Oh, okay. I see. So not, you mean, you're talking about training sessions generally, not DEI sessions. Yeah, no, I mean, right. And that's part of the point that we want to make is that there is a a thing uh, called training properly understood, right? It's what you do with circus animals and babies and dogs and, uh, right? I mean, you're trying to teach them a specific skill. And and that's that's fine. I I don't think uh, either one of us had any issue with that. It's when it bleeds over into the indoctrination. But you're using the same word for both things, and that creates part of the confusion, I think. Let me also say uh, on that point that we make a we make a, a point in the argument. I mean, in the article itself, that we we don't even have a problem with things that are legally required by universities. Of course, if if the Title IX uh, laws apply to our universities, and the university needs to be protected by having all its faculty undergo these sessions, we're not trying to undermine the authority of the university in obeying duly enacted laws. Assuming that we assume Title IX is duly enacted, but but given that. There's a legal reason for being trained in something where you are a representative of the university and could put the university in legal jeopardy. So even to that extent, there's we don't see a problem with those sorts of trainings. It is where you get into the more contentious issues where the ends are not at all clear, uh, but actually postulated by a diversity office. Um, and, and the ends are tendentious, indeed, that, that we start just to say that's not really a legitimate subject of training. I once heard the um, these trainings, which this was at the time when critical race theory was kind of becoming the label that would describe what people are talking about when they refer to DEI office DEI offices and um, these different you know equity initiatives. And um, I believe it was during a um, it was during a presidential uh, debate where it was referred to as sensitivity training, and that was kind of jarring for people who are reporting and you know dis- who are and parents especially who are you know showing up at school meetings and um, saying like that this isn't sensitivity training. So would you would you characterize any of the training as sensitivity training? What what is the characterizing detail of it, and what have they looked like? The ones that perhaps aren't you useful, the ones that are kind of identity focused and driven, what's the nature of them? Well, so I, let me take a couple of cracks at that and then I'll turn it over to Elizabeth. I think one of the things about uh, that we object to these kind of indoctrination sessions is um, they presume certain kinds of outcomes. And uh, I mean, training is always going to try to produce a particular outcome. Um, And as Elizabeth said, uh, with a lot of these things, the outcomes that they're uh, assuming are very much debatable, uh, wh- whether those are outcomes we want or not, or we can even achieve. So take the idea of sensitivity, for example. Um, you know, it's one of the buzzwords right now in the academy is the word empathy, uh, that we're supposed to be people empathetic. Well, I, I think I can speak for Elizabeth here as well as, uh, you know, we're, we, we both are the parents of three children. 
Um, we've spent 18 years trying to make our children empathetic with, you know, varying degrees of success. Uh, you, you know, so the idea that you can make someone sensitive in whatever a two hour training session is on the face of it, pretty absurd, I think. Um, and, and so what is really going on is exactly this kind of indoctrination. What, what, what they're really doing is uh, alerting you to what's going to be permissible and what's going to be impermissible. Uh, and, um, and this is a way of doing that without argumentation and without contestation or without academic inquiry. Um, and, and so, yeah, you get these things in these sensitivity sessions. So we've got one going on on campus right now. It's called CQ training. Uh, you know, there's IQ, there's EQ. This was new to me, CQ. Uh, it's your cultural quotient. And um, it's designed to show how culturally sensitive you are. And I haven't taken the training yet, but I was talking to someone who had. Um, and what they do, I couldn't believe this, uh, is when they give you your results from your training, they identify your results by racial traits. And so it turns out that this extraordinarily white woman uh, has quite a few African-American racial traits according to this training thing that she went through. Um, one of which was her answer to the question, I'm okay if I'm sometimes late to things, right? So now we're back to like these old stereotypes that we just found objectionable years ago, but now we're being smuggled back in in this training stuff. I mean, it, it's, it like beggars the imagination. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, what does this do, this kind of stuff, you know, how does this impact the faculty? You know, how do you, do you see it? I mean, in the, in the classroom, you're teaching, I mean, if you have this sort of all-seeing eye looking over you. How do you think it's impacting teachers on your campus? Well, let me say, I, I do think there's a distinction between Hope and Baylor on this. Hope has gone much, much further down this road than Baylor has. To Baylor's credit, uh, we are, our, our diversity training is still relatively mild. And, and if we were subjected to what Jeff has just discussed, I think there would be a massive faculty revolt. I really do. We've got a, I mean, Baylor's a remarkably diverse place. We've got a lot of progressives. We got a lot of moderates and we've got a lot of conservatives. So there would be, there would be such a massive uh, objection to that, that I, I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't go forward. The, but at most places it does and it will, you know, the, the whole notion of sensitivity is, is really quite insulting <laughs> because look, they've hired us as professors. They, they've, put us through the interview process. They've watched us teach. They've done all sorts of things to vet professors to take the kind of authority that we must take. And so then to be told that, well, you don't really know how to treat your students. And here it is, we're going to show you how, and here's what you must say to them. It is, especially to people who've been in the classroom for decades, really uh, it's insulting and it's, it's condescending. So there's that part of it. And I guess everybody more or less just grits their teeth and gets through it because they know they have to. But what's, what's interesting to me is whether or not there would be consequences for not doing the training. And I'm sure that varies across universities. But I know that this year there are several people at my own university who just said, yeah, I'm not doing it. We're not going to engage in the training this year. What will happen to them? I don't know. I suspect nothing because the truth is a lot of these offices don't have the kind of authority to really come back and say, well, you will be, you know, you'll be docked pay or something that, that is a real punishment. So I wonder, I mean, my question, I guess, is if, if there were a massive revolt against the trainings, what would, what would happen? 
I think there would be more pressure and more pressure from the administration. But but I don't know that um, I don't know what kind of teeth any of this has really, except to, to the, the hope is to uh, intimidate people into saying, OK, well, I'll just do it. If I can say something with regard to that, I think everything she said is exactly right. And I've taken to when we get these emails or things about training, because they usually couch in the language of it begins with, uh, we are excited to offer you this developmental opportunity. And then there's an exclamation point. I mean, these emails have tons of exclamation points. And then it's and then the next sentence is uh, you have been assigned to mandatory training. And, and so my standard question now has become, or what? I want to know what's going to happen if I don't do this. Um, and I have not been told I'd be fired if I didn't do it. But I have been told that I will be ineligible for merit increases if I don't do it. So, you know, I mean, it, 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 yeah, I guess there are different kinds of consequences they could put into place. And I could also see, I mean, you have both, you know, taught at your respective universities for a number of years, you know, so I could, I could imagine, you know, you could resist or not show up and maybe just kind of live with the consequences. But if you're thinking about future professors who are applying to jobs, who are trying to get in the door, I, it would be pretty hard in my mind to not have to toe the line in every way if you're actually going to get a spot there. Johnny, I think that's right. And also what I've noticed now is there are more and more reports of people being asked to write diversity statements before they're even considered for a job. So that, you know, if you're teaching medieval philosophy at, a, at certain schools, it doesn't really matter that that's your field. You need to talk about how you're going to integrate questions of diversity into your medieval philosophy teaching, which to me, I mean, there are ways one could do that and talk about, you know, civilizational diversity and all that. But that's not really what they're looking for. They are looking for the current categories of contemporary American diversity being thrown back on whatever subject it is you happen to teach. And you have to talk about that from the get go. And I think you're right that for young people trying to enter the academy, it's really difficult unless you do toe that line. Yeah, I think there are um, a couple of interesting things about that going on as well. Um, one is that uh, goes back to something Elizabeth said earlier. Everything is based upon presumption of guilt. And so these training sessions are all put together without even a demonstration that there's a problem. Now, you can, of course, uh, gin up problems, make it look like there's a problem. But, you know, honestly, the modern academy is the most uh, tolerant, diverse, multiracial, multicultural kind of entity human beings have ever created. And yet we still treat them as if they're these benighted backwaters. Um, and so there's an, there's, there's an interest in making things look worse than they really are and just presuming that people are guilty of all these implicit biases and stuff like that that have to be weeded out of us somehow. Um, the other point, Johnny, I think this is really important. Uh, so we have uh, one of our departments now, we have diversity statements that faculty have to submit. We have part of our evaluation process diversity statements um, as part of our as part of that process, um, every hiring committee on campus has to have an equity advisor who's gone through equity training. And uh, there are departments on campus now that have as the four categories of evaluation: research, scholarship, service, commitment to diversity. Uh, those are the four categories for tenure and promotion. Um, the only way this is going to change is for senior faculty to take the lead. Uh, junior faculty have too much at stake. They're in tenuous, uh, vulnerable positions. 
Um, and so it's got to be people like me on our campuses. I'm tenured. I'm fully promoted. Um, who are willing to put our neck, necks out. Because I, I have faculty coming out of the woodwork. After this Chronicle article, for example, liberal faculty on campus who are coming to me and saying, I'm scared. Like, what, what can we do? And I said, well, first thing you need to do is get tenure. All right. And, and let, let's focus on that. In the meantime, those of us who are tenured can kind of be at the front lines of the battle. I think that's right. And one thing I just wanted to jump in and say on the heels of that is that Jeff and I have both received uh, some together and some separately, a lot of letters from around the country of people saying, one, um, thank you for saying what you said in that piece. And two, I can't believe you said that. And three, I can't believe the Chronicle of Higher Education published it because this is a widespread sentiment. I mean, people under the surface think exactly what this essay says. But nobody feels they can say it because of the, the, you know, the the fear of never getting another merit raise or not ever getting your foot in the door um, because you have to toe the toe this line. And so I think Jeff is absolutely right that the people who are now more senior, you know, if we're unwilling to be uh, somewhat courageous about calling this out for what it is, it's it's uh, no one else is in a position to do it. And I think it's important that we do. Hey, listeners, let me recommend another podcast for you to tune into if you're fans of conservative conversations with ISI. It's called The New Thinkery, and it stars a trio of conservative professors who don't take themselves all that seriously, even while talking about the most serious philosophical topics one can imagine. In short, it's a podcast devoted to political philosophy and its history, along with its many guises in literature, film, and human experience generally. They have done episodes on Plato, Shakespeare, and Mark Twain, Pick a topic or thinker in the history of Western civilization, and they've touched on it. And they also have guest episodes with your favorite political theorists like Larry Cooper, Jan Blitz, Jim Caesar, and Flag Taylor. You can find The New Thinkery anywhere you find your podcasts. You can also find them on Facebook, The New Thinkery, and Twitter, at The New Thinkery. Now, let's get back to the podcast. I'm curious, um, you know, you mentioned this outpouring of, of support that you're receiving from professors who are kind of hiding their faces. Um, you know, they, they perhaps don't want to draw attention to their support of, of the sentiment. Um, what would you, what do you think is the the sentiment among most professors? I, a lot of, you know, professors are often, and, and universities in general are often, um, you know, labeled as being these hotbeds of of leftist radicalism, and um, there are the occasional professors that um, kind of they they don't toe the line. They they do they are they're not obeying some of the um, the more radical contingents that exist in some departments. Would you say that that's an accurate characterization, or um, do you think that this is something that you believe most professors and especially tenured ones um, would agree to? Do they? Do you still have faith that um, there is still a, a faith in academic inquiry and, and freedom at the at the university level? I'll, I'll, I'll take a poke at that first. So I think you can kind of divide the professorate into um, at least three categories. There are going to be people, a very small number of people, as we're discovering, who will actively and vocally oppose it. There will be a fairly good number of people who actively support it because it agrees with the ends that they are interested in. Um, and Elizabeth has written really intelligently about the distinction between truth university and social justice university. And so they're operating with this kind of conception of a social justice university. And these things fit right in with what they're doing. And so 
they're on board with it. And then there's a third category of the people who are going to go along with it, uh, and they might go along with it for various reasons. Uh, one reason that's not to be understated is that a lot of faculty view themselves as free agents, right? They're hired by the university, but they're really kind of doing their own thing. Uh, they're not that committed to the mission of the college. Uh, they do like teaching their classes, but they really like their scholarship and research. Um, and as long as something is not directly affecting or directly impacting that, uh, and it's whatever, it's an hour here or two hours there, they'll put up with it. Uh, because for the most part, they're kind of left alone other than that. Uh, and, and so it's kind of like a, a price they're willing to be to pay to be otherwise left alone. And part of that price is how perfunctory they are in these sessions. I mean, if, if they're live sessions or online sessions, uh, so many faculty are just perfunctory in the way they go through these things. Right? They hold their noses and they, they'll do it, but they won't object to it because that could uh, affect their jobs in some ways. Um, and they're not really on board with it, uh, but they really just want to do their own thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And they're, that that middle group is uh, Jeff is right to put it in the terms of free agency because those that middle group is saying, look, I I might be at this university for five years for ten years then maybe I'll go somewhere else you know if a better opportunity comes up I'll I'll go many, I have to say in my experience and I'm sure Jeff's going to agree with this uh, many faculty are opportunists so we're just kind of here for a little while waiting for the the next better opportunity that is actually not the case with either Jeff or me. Um, because we're committed to our institutions. And so it's more, in that sense, it's more painful to see the institutions making these turns uh, that we think are actually bad for academic freedom and for the mission of what we understood ourselves to be doing when we took the jobs in the first place, which was, was a kind of free inquiry. And, and this is really at the heart of what, has, uh, what we're objecting to, that, that these trainings postulate a certain set of political ends as goods. And we dispute those ends as being goods, or we dispute how those ends are defined by the training sessions. I mean, they really beg more questions than they answer. Nevertheless, as a trainee, you must click the right button in order to get through and to successfully complete the training. And that is that is directly counter to the mission of the university as we understand it. And and that's why we wrote the piece. I mean, it, really, when you get to the heart of it, it's um, it's, a, it's an infringement on, on what we understand ourselves to be doing. Elizabeth, can you elaborate a bit in terms of the mission, vocation of a university, what it ought to be versus what it is? Well, we think, uh, both Jeff and I do, because we've had many conversations about this, that the university is a place where we pursue uh, ideas, uh, no matter where that may take us. The problem with social justice as an end is that, well, the end is pre pretty much predetermined and it's agreed on. And so the idea is there that we um, we already know what the good is. And Jeff and I would say, wait, wait a minute. The whole point, especially in political philosophy or in philosophy, is to say, well, this might be the good, but let's examine it. So, for example, equality is a good. OK, everybody thinks equality is a good. But are there ways in which equality is not a good? Are, are people actually equal? In what ways are they equal? These, these sorts of questions that really get at the heart of, um, of concepts, we are, not, we are not free to question in a training session, but that's exactly what we do in our classes. So we're, we're saying in a way that the trainings are directly opposed to the, the ends of the university, which is uh, the most important of which is, is free inquiry.
Yeah, I, you know, I, I wrote a piece in Law and Liberty a couple years ago on uh, the end of equality because we don't use the word equality on campus anymore. Everything is equity these days. And equity is a really, I think, bad concept to be using on academic campuses. Um, and so if you're in these sessions and somebody says, uh, as they always do, they use the word equity and you raise your hand and say, OK, so when you're using the word equity, what do you mean by that? But when you're using the word justice, what do you mean by that? Well, that's impermissible, right? Now you're a troublemaker for having asked what's just a common sense question about the way words are being used. You know, so uh, we make the point in our essay that there are lots of institutions in civil society that we can imagine that are committed to the particular ends that, that are talked about in these training sessions, greater equity, greater inclusion, greater diversity, particular conceptions of justice, particular conceptions of good. You can imagine all kinds of associations that might be dedicated to that. But the academy is really the only um, social organization that's dedicated to free inquiry, to research, to the pursuit of truth. Um, and so what we're doing is defending that idea and, and saying that um, society itself will lose something incredibly valuable if the academy does not do what the academy is supposed to do, and that is to scrutinize uh, and make judgments and deliberate and discuss and, and make errors and make mistakes and so forth. Um, and if the academy is not doing that, then the whole society itself gets kind of sucked into this vortex of ideological conflict. Jeff, you mentioned um, some of the components of this word salad, equity, equality. You know, there, there's there's so many of them that um, have been thrown around. And um, I just want to take a few steps back because you briefly mentioned the word empathy. And, um, you know, em you both teach at Christian schools. And so I'm curious, how would you how would you describe what empathy actually is? Is is what is being taught in these sessions actually empathy, or what is the the proper understanding? What is what, what is empathy rightly understood? Can I jump in and, and begin to answer that? I, I want to make an argument that what you're calling empathy is also related to the concept of humility, and both those both those virtues we think. Don't you want to be empathetic? Don't you want to be humble? Of course, those those are good virtues, and they are interestingly Christian virtues. Um, ironically, what what I think Jeff would object to, and I know I would object to, is the kind of transfiguration or the transformation of those terms from a real sort of moral, even Christian understanding into a kind of political uh, understanding them as political. I should say because. What's happening is that empathy and humility are being used now to say, well, we we've got to be empathetic. In, in other words, we can never we can never judge anyone and we can never say anything is better or worse. So it's a way of saying, well, we, we're going to be kind. We're going to be thoughtful. We're going to be helpful. We're going to be humble. All those things are, of course, good. But it is also to say that we should never <laughs> sometimes we should never correct a student. You know, everyone's view is as good as everyone else's. So it's it's kind of to take all all evaluative standards out of the out of the mix. That, that's at least part of the impetus for using these words like uh, empathy and humility. Yeah, I, I think there are, um, uh, to, just to add on to that, um, one thing that I think is happening to the academy is um, a kind of tyranny of feeling. Feelings are kind of ineluctable and, and you know, you can't really dispute feelings. Right? If somebody feels a certain way, they feel that way. Right? There's really nothing you can do about that. 
Reason, of course, is inherently disputable. And so when the academy becomes more consumed with feelings than it does with thinking, um, then it's kind of losing its mooring. Uh, and, and it can't become a place of disputation because um, then it becomes, uh, you know, contestation becomes wounding, unsafe. The current word is traumatizing. I mean, everybody's being traumatized these days. And, and, and so I think part of what I'd like to see is uh, the academy uh, uh, putting thinking ahead of feeling as uh, the center part of the academic enterprise. And the second thing, Marlo, directly related to your question, um, is that we've kind of lost our idea of what virtue is. Um, and so one way to deal with these uh, issues is just to ask, okay, so you're saying that it's good to be X, empathetic, tolerant, inclusive, or whatever. What kind of virtue is that? And then to go to the old Aristotelian idea of virtue. What are the extremes here? Um, and I think so what Elizabeth just said is exactly right, because if you think about that in a kind of Aristotelian sense, you know, what are what should our reaction be to someone who disagrees with us? Just agree with them is one extreme, right? Always gainsay them would be the other extreme. Um, and so what we've done is, I think, in a lot of these instances, we've just privileged one of the extremes of the reactive process. And the, the key really is to get back to the mean on these kinds of things. So if inclusion is indeed a virtue, you know, what, what kind of virtue is it? Uh, what it can't be in the academy is just every point of view, every argument, uh, every characteristic is equal to every other one. It can't mean that. Um, and, and so I, I think part of what we have to do is kind of restore the old Aristotelian notion of virtue. The other thing I would add to that is that that speech has to be free. I mean, it, it certainly maybe not all across the university, but definitely in the classroom. And so notions of things like microaggressions, where you're constantly on edge, fearing that you will say the wrong thing and be reported to the bias response team, which there is one at Baylor, uh, is not a way of conducting class. You've got to be free to say stupid things, not intentionally, and, and I'm not saying you should try to offend people, but you're going to mess up. And so are the students. And so is everyone in, in an open and honest conversation. And this idea that somebody is looking over your shoulder, Johnny, this gets back to your original question, that that if you if you make the wrong move, then you're going to be reported by someone to the bias response team. That, that just shuts down uh, real intellectual conversation. And it shuts down the, the whole point of what especially Jeff and I are trying to do in our philo political philosophy classes. So that, that's, a, that's a very, um, <laughs> it, it freezes the kind of um, the, uh, intellectual discussion that otherwise should be going on. What do you see, just as you're looking at our wider culture and the corporate world that's also now, you know, this was pretty much confined to the academy. Now this is pretty mainstream in most corporations. What do you see as the, I, I don't know, I mean, what what is the logical conclusion of this ideology? And do you see there actually being a, um, a backlash against it? Or are the people that are, I, I know you have someone like Chris Rufo, who, who has these small victories where he exposes, okay, here's what American Express has done. And then American Express ends up getting rid of that training program, maybe adding a new one, but kind of backpedaling a bit. I mean, do you think there will be mass resistance or are the people trying to resist too powerless compared to the, you know, the bureaucrats and administrators and wh who have the, you know, HR departments? 
Uh, I'll, I'll take a crack at that first here a second. Um, uh, I'm still counting on uh, this, the, the residual of the love of liberty in Americans uh, to make itself felt. Um, and I think it does. Uh, right? we, we still see, you know, uh, Americans love their freedom. Uh, and, and you can only mess with it so much before you start getting the backlash, before you start getting the resistance. And so I think there are signs of that out there um, that, that I regard as hopeful. Um, the second thing I'd want to say um, actually goes back to the first question that we were asked. Uh, you know, what's what's the what do you see as the big problems? Um, you'll notice that I, I went negative and Elizabeth went affirmative, which is probably tells you something about both of us as human beings. Um, but I think there's a, a, a kind of twin thing going on here. One, you get the resistance where, where people are seeing something they don't like going on. And most specifically, they see something undermining or undoing something that they love and value. In our case, it's the academy. Uh, we love and value the academy. We think it's important and we see it being destroyed from within. Um, and so you resist that. Um, and then the second part um, is to do something about it. Um, and so the classical school movement that Elizabeth mentioned at the beginning is an example of people doing something about it. ISI is an organization. ISI's book of the year was Yuval Levin's A Time to Build. And that's what that book is recommending, right? Do, th th there's opportunity out there. Um, this weekend, I'm taking a group of students up to the Kirk Center in Macosta for a weekend intellectual retreat. And, um, you know, I've got a donor who gave me money to do this. Uh, and the students absolutely love it because it's uh, two days where we're having honest conversations, intellectual conversations, and they're attending really interesting lectures. They're getting the education they should be getting back on campus, but aren't. Um, but there are the opportunities to do stuff like that. And so I think resist where necessary, build where you can is not a bad way to go. Jeff, that's beautifully put. And I would have said the same thing. I, I want to say in a way, the same thing. I mean, it does seem to me that as conservatives on campus, we have we have two tasks, and those are the tasks that you just outlined. One is to resist, and that's what we felt, Jeff and I felt we were doing in this piece, and I think resistance is, is very important. The problem, I think, in contemporary conservatism is that we often tend to go so far in the resistance and so far in the anger and the warring that we don't get around to the important part of doing the activity that we actually think is valuable, like teaching and learning and conversation. So, you know, in, in one sense, that the, the criticism is really well underway. <laughs> We've got lots of conservative commentators, including us, who, who say, yeah, this is wrong, here's why it's wrong, articulate a view. But the real work, I think, comes from having these conversations with ISI students at AEI, Hertog, Witherspoon, all these places that do this alternative education. And and showing young people that they don't have to buy into this stuff or that there are people out there who think as they do or have a different understanding of what a university is for that they can be on board with. And they they need that. I certainly would have needed that as a young person. And uh, I think to the extent we we build, as Yuval um, Levin has said, that's, that's the most important work we can do. If I can uh, add just one brief comment to that, I think um, that Elizabeth and I have the same idea about this also. One of the things that we object to is the way um, colleagues will use classrooms as places of indoctrination. The response to that cannot be to turn your classroom into an alternative place of indoctrination. 
The alternative to that has to be doing your job, right? Teaching the thing that you are paid to teach, that you are hired to teach um, in a conscientious way that serves the students, regardless of their own political orientations, right? I mean, like, like I said, at this Kirk Center weekend, I got students from across the political spectrum um, attending this because it's not about political ideology. It's it's about the life of the mind and, and, and feeding the life of the mind. So I, I worry sometimes that some people say, okay, well, if my liberal colleagues are going to do this in their classroom, then I'm going to do this in my classroom to fight them. Um, and I think that's a losing strategy. For students who are interested in um, having this alternative classroom and that can enjoy the the education from both uh, Elizabeth and Jeff, um, we do have our honors applications open. So that that's in the summer, and you know it, you get to meet with um, students. Often, I mean, we say they're like-minded. They're like-minded in their appreciation of um, being able to openly discuss these ideas with um, charity in mind, which, Elizabeth, you, you touched on earlier, just having um, the charity to openly discuss without fear of, you know, fear of offending in, 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 a, pers- in a way that, um, that was once a characteristic of the academy. So I encourage any student um, to apply to our program. And I, we, we end our program usually, or our podcast, by asking, uh, what is conservatism? So I'm interested in hearing what, what you, Jeff, and Elizabeth have to say about your definition of what conservatism is. Yeah, well, you know, to some extent I've just said it, uh, which is that I think the essence of the conservative disposition is as I, as I said before, there must be defense, there must be fighting um, at times to defend goods that we see uh, being lost. But the, the real heart of the conservative disposition is to engage in activities as ends in themselves that we've judged to be good. And these activities range widely from things like um, liberal learning. Obviously, Jeff and I think both that both think that that is extremely um, vital, but things like having conversations having friendships, love, family life, all these things that are that are not uh, sort of corruptible by the market, or they, they can be, they can be quite corrupted. But the, the point is that there are these intrinsic goods that we as conservatives want to preserve. And the best way to preserve them is by one, doing them, and two, modeling them for other people. Because if students come away from their college education and think, well, College is about politics. You know, I I went to college to become an activist, uh, or or that that's that's how they end up leaving. They think, well, my job is to be political through and through. I think we've done them a massive disservice. Uh, I actually think our our job, especially as university teachers, to show them that they're these intrinsic goods that that are worthwhile and that are essentially human, and that to the degree we engage in them, we will live a happy and flourishing life. So it's like it's a kind of. Um, I wouldn't say it's not political. I think there's a there's definitely a place for political conservatism, but but the essence of re- of real conservatism is this preservation of intrinsic goods. Yeah, it just I I, I can't improve upon that. Um, I, I I would say it's it's a mode of love, um, and um, Russell Kirk in his uh, book Prospects for Conservatives. Uh, anybody's interested? I think it's page twenty three um, in that book. He has this kind of Description uh, as of the conservative as somebody who loves, uh, and that's kind of the beginning and the end of conservatism. Uh, and uh, you know, he says in that passage something to the effect of even hell was created out of love, um, and that uh, you know, conservative can kind of uh, even welcome death 
as his reward for a life well lived. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that's um, really the most important thing is uh, a conservative is a person um, who has great love, uh, love for other human beings um, and love for the good things in life and hates losing them. Right. Uh, so Oakshot in his uh, essay, What is a Conservative? Elizabeth knows this a lot better than I do. Uh, but, but he describes a conservative as someone who is finely attuned to loss. And what we don't like are having to accept certain losses for the promise of uncertain gains. Uh, and this is why we don't like innovators or why, why we're suspicious of innovators, because they keep insisting that we accept certain losses in the promise of really uncertain gains, which they rarely deliver on. Uh, that's the problem. And, and if I believe that these things are fundamentally good and you're telling me I have to sacrifice them, um, you're going to have to make a compelling case to me as to why I'm, I'm going to have to sacrifice that. And those cases are rarely forthcoming. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's an affection. Uh, it all hinges on affection uh, and our sort of disposition to the world. Thanks, uh, Elizabeth and Jeff. Those are both brilliant answers, perhaps some of the best we've, we've heard when we've asked that question. So thank you so much for joining us today. If people are interested in following your work, where can they find you? I don't use Twitter. Uh, I do have uh, a, a webpage on Baylor's, on, on Baylor's uh, university page. Just type in Elizabeth Corey Baylor, and I have a lot of writings posted there. I probably should have something like that. I think I was approached a couple of years ago by someone in the administration. Uh, they, people can email me, uh, Paulette at hope.edu. Um, you can do a, a, a kind of Google search. Um, but, you know, I think uh, one thing Elizabeth and I both really value is conversations. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we welcome uh, any of them that come our way. Uh, and, you know, it's been one of the neat things about this essay is that we're getting all these emails from people. And it's kind of like, yeah, it's nice to have a sort of conversation about this. And, and uh, some of them have provoked further thoughts, I think, for both of us about the, the direction of all this. So Google search or email me. I, I, I love getting emails. Well, no, not from administrators. From, from <laughs> awesome. Thank you both again, uh, Elizabeth and Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. Conservative Conversations with ISI.